Well, um, this is the first of the year, and I wonder how things are going for you. I mean, are things exceptionally good or exceptionally not good, exceptionally bad, in fact, or somewhere in between? It's one of the three. You know, things are really great, really bad, or somewhere in between. It's amazing how quickly life can change, is it not? And everything is going along great, and then, bam, something bad happens. Or it seems like you're just slugging along, and then, bam, something happens. And, and, and your position is just totally changed. Everything turned around in just a moment. It's kind of like mountain weather. If you don't like it, hang around for five minutes. It'll change. It, it's that way. Life is, is, is kind of unpredictable. And, and the problem for us in our day is that we are accustomed to dealing with most difficult issues very quickly. We've got resources. We've got connections. We've got ways of easing the pain, of turning things around quickly. And when things don't turn around quickly, or when things happen that are so bad, that it seems like there's no way out of this, it's frustrating. And furthermore, when unemployment or broken relationships or strained relationships, college classes, or depression go on forever. Those last two are not redundant, by the way, college classes, depression. When, they, when, they, when it feels like they go on forever, then life can become quite difficult. I think all serious-minded Christ followers know deep down in their hearts that everything has a purpose. I mean, we believe, Romans eight twenty eight that everything, for those who... Who love God, everything works together for good. It's just that I would rather believe that for you than for me. Because I don't want to be in a place where I have to think about that and say, well, you know, everything's got a purpose and God is in control. But it's true. True. I don't, I don't mind looking back and seeing how God worked. But at the moment, my tendency is to want to get out of the trouble. But it's far better that we trust the Lord in the midst of of trials rather than having to look back and saying, boy, God was sure good back then when I was wondering how everything was going to go. Well, today we're going to talk about life changes for believers and non-believers alike. We're going to return to our study in Acts this morning. And, and to set the stage, you'll recall so far that the gospel, in, in, in the first seven chapters of Acts, we've seen the gospel take root in Jerusalem. My goodness, uh, people trusted Christ by large numbers, the apostles were the unquestioned leaders of Christianity, which was contained in the rapidly growing Jerusalem church. But because it was growing so quickly, administrative problems developed. And so the, the office or the role of deacon was established in order to help deal with the problems that were inherent with a, a growing, a rapidly expanding organizations. Uh, organization. The, the apostles got in a, in, in a bit of trouble because they were preaching Jesus and they were saying that the, the Jewish leaders and the Roman authorities had crucified him, but God had showed him to be the Messiah and God himself by raising him from the dead. And as you can imagine, the Jewish leaders did not appreciate that kind of preaching. Rome didn't care at this point. But in, in Jerusalem, the council was not happy, and they brought the, elder, uh, brought the apostles in. Once they just jailed them overnight, then they beat them, let them go. But everything was still okay for the general masses. During this time, the apostles preached. The believers cared deeply for one another, going so far as to sell property so that they could help the poor amongst them. 
And the deacon served the body by distributing those funds that came from the sale of property. And the believers loved one another deeply. And as a result of the preaching and the love that they exhibited for one another, thousands and thousands of people came to Jesus. And there was this incredible love that flowed through the church. Now, some of the people who trusted Christ, especially at Pentecost, were in Jerusalem for the feast, for the festival, and they went to their homes hundreds and sometimes even thousands of miles away. And I'm certain they proclaimed Jesus in those places. But for the most part, the gospel was in Jerusalem. So the Lord used a deacon named Stephen to get the gospel out of Jerusalem. You remember that Jesus had said just before he ascended, you're going to be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth, you're going to go to the ends of earth proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. But life was good in Jerusalem. Nobody wanted to get out. And the Lord said, let me help you along. Well, we left off our study of Acts in chapter 7 where Stephen, a deacon, was martyred for, for proclaiming Jesus as Lord and Messiah and accusing the Jewish leaders of wickedly putting him to death. Today in Acts 8, we are going to read about another deacon, Philip, whom the Lord used greatly to spread the gospel out of Jerusalem, especially in Samaria. Our text is the entire 8th chapter of Acts, but there's no way we could just go through this like we normally do and, and pick up all the truth. So here's what I'm going to do. I've done this a time or two before. This really works well in the book of Acts when we've got large chunks of Scripture to cover going to talk about some some biblical principles that we see in this chapter or truths i'm going to list them there are nine of them that we're going to list this morning and and then we'll go through read the text a little bit deliberately with a comment here or there but it would be very helpful if you've got a pen and you're willing to do that to to write these down because this chapter will open up i imagine for some of you as you begin to see what god is doing if you just write this down ahead of time so we'll We'll get to those principles or those truths that are found in Acts chapter 8 just after we bow for prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, um, we are so grateful to be a part of your church. And there are days when it is exceedingly good to belong to you. And there are days that it is exceedingly difficult to belong to you because... Just as Jesus warned us, if they hated him, they're going to hate us. And there are people who just don't like us. We, we love them and we certainly want to love them, Lord. But their anger toward you sometimes is seen as anger toward us. And we experience that and it's difficult. Lord, if we are not experiencing any of that discomfort or displeasure, chances are very strong we're not sharing the gospel because the gospel is divisive, but all we know it to be the power of God. We know it to be what saved us, what changed us, and we are compelled to tell it. So today as we read about the gospel on the move, going forward, 
advancing out of Jerusalem into Samaria. I pray that our hearts will be challenged and excited to share Jesus. And that we would not be discouraged when Satan attacks, but we would defend the gospel. We would defend, Lord, ourselves even with the spiritual armor that we're told to put on in Ephesians chapter 6. And I pray that this day you would work in our hearts. You've brought us here for a reason. You determined before the world ever began that this text would be shared on this day in this place with all of us here. We're not here by accident. So speak to us and change us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. The first truth that we're going to see in Acts 8 is that when all seems to be going well on the spiritual front, you can expect an attack from Satan. Satan does not like things to be going well in our lives. Uh, I, I absorbed this truth so well when I was younger that I just almost couldn't enjoy life when, when it was good because I was constantly waiting for bad things to start happening. You know, when everything is going well spiritually, you can be certain that Satan is going to attack. But don't be living in dread of that. God is... In control, as we'll see in this next point. So enjoy the good times and accept that truth, the second truth, that God is in control and He is working His marvelous will in this world and in our, our lives. Sometimes seemingly horrific events or things that happen to us in our lives put us in places or in a direction that end up being very, very good for us. And we look back and we say, I thought that was going to be a disaster in my life, and yet it turns out to have been a very good thing. Now, that doesn't always have to happen. Sometimes we die like Stephen did. I mean, sometimes life does not get better from a human standpoint or just from our perspective of, of enjoying life and having life with, with ease and, and, and pleasure. That's not necessary. What is necessary is that we are in the place we need to be for God to use us in His will and in His kingdom. I mean, if we really believe, if we really believe that this life is less than a blink, that eternity is what really counts, but how we live in this blink of an eye here makes a difference in all eternity, then that's what our focus is going to be rather than whether life is good or bad. We just understand that Satan's attacking, but that's okay because God's will is being accomplished. And we want to be a part of that. I think about glorifying God. You know, God is going to get His glory. It, it's, it's just that we ought to be participants in that. We ought to be, be doing the things that He commands us to do, led by His Spirit controlled by His Spirit so that we get to participate in God's glory rather than just being a bystander and Him getting glory in spite of us rather than because of Him using us. Truth number three. Most gospel witness will be accomplished not by preachers and teachers, but by those who are not paid to present the gospel. It ends up being a deacon whose ministry we follow in our text 
today, but tell me about your ministry. Look, we, we, we zero in on Philip, but it says they were scattered everywhere. They went everywhere preaching the gospel. That's more than the seven deacons are talking about. They're just talking about the Christians who were in Jerusalem, who got out of town quickly because they were being persecuted for the message. Now, most of us would, would, would run out and lie down and lick our wounds and say, well, I'm not going to... I'm not going to do that anymore if that's what's going to happen. But these guys went out and said, hey, let me tell you something. They understood what, what God was doing. And everybody is to be about the witness. What if? What if I were the only one sharing Christ in our community as the teaching elder? But, but wait a minute. It's not just one pastor here. It's a group of pastors. It's the elders. Okay, well, let's, let's put all the elders in there. What if we're the only one sharing Christ? It's not happening. It's not getting done. God's called every one of us to share the gospel. Well, truth number four. God delights in saving the most unlikely people. You ever seen that happen? They tell me I was number one on the police list when I was in high school. I don't know if that's the case, but I can tell you that people were shocked when the Lord saved me. I am so grateful that God saved me. I have seen people that are just belligerent. In fact, the last week before I was saved, I was belligerent with those who tried to share the gospel with me. It was a part of the old Jesus movement in 1972. And I was cussing people royally, telling them, don't tell me that. I don't want to hear that. I'll never do that. And, you know, of course, the Lord was smiling and saying, oh, yes, you will, and sooner than you think. Um, But we tend to look at people and say, they'll never get, stop it. Stop it. God is able to save anybody, and he delights in doing so. In this text, it's it's the Samaritans whom God saves, despised by the Jews, considered to be racially impure and heretical in their belief, even though they claim to worship the same God that the Jews did. Later, the Lord uses Philip to lead a eunuch to Christ. Now, now that was remarkable. Eunuchs were, were uh, prohibited from entering the temple in the law. And Isaiah 56, God lifted that restriction, but don't you know that those prejudices died hard with the Jewish people. Tradition was important to them. And so... It didn't matter, though. God was now bringing eunuchs into his family through Jesus. But as we learn with truth five, there are many false prophets who seem to have a power, but they lead people astray rather than to the Lord. In fact, they may seem to be sincere, in fact. Satan is a great imitator. When error has a great deal of truth embedded in it, it is extremely dangerous. The closer error is to truth, the more dangerous it is. Which is why groups like Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons are so dangerous because they whip out the Bible. We believe the Bible. We believe. Ask people one question, one question alone. Do you believe that Jesus Christ was God? And tell me what you mean by that. Tell me what you mean that Jesus Christ it was and is God. Pre-existent, eternal, has been around as long as the Father is, which is forever. And don't try to think about it, it'll mess your mind. 
That's the question that has to be answered. Another truth that we're going to see in this passage is that the Holy Spirit's work cannot be measured in numbers. We like to do that. We like to think when churches grow in or large numbers are coming to Christ that God is really doing something. And when it's just a few, ain't much happening. Uh, Philip goes from this great revival in Samaria down to witness to one person, but this one Ethiopian eunuch. It's probably a, a large reason that the gospel was spread in Africa. Gentile, most likely black African, converted to Judaism, proselyte of Judaism, saved, goes home, and the gospel spreads in Africa, where there is a great revival today, by the way. Well, um, the eunuch was saved when Isaiah 53 was explained to him, which leads to the seventh thing we're going to see in Acts 8, that the gospel is found in all of Scripture. We've talked about that a lot this past year. We'll also see in this chapter, as we have seen earlier in Acts, that baptism is nearly inseparable from one's profession of faith. Repent of your sins, trust Jesus, sacrifice on the cross, His payment for your sins, and be baptized. And that's not the way we would present the gospel, but it's the way they did in the early church. The New Testament does not include baptism as a part of one's salvation, but it's almost difficult to, to, to find that truth. It's there. It's pretty clear in the Scripture. But, but it was so inseparable in their minds that it almost appears to be part and parcel. You get saved, you're, you're baptized. Your baptism is your identification with Christ. You say, I'm serious about this. I'm done with my old life. And with God's help, I'm dying to my sins. He's raising me to walk in newness of life. The ninth and last principle that we'll consider from this chapter is really a summary of Acts 8 and a summary of the entire book. The advance of the gospel must be a high priority and key focus in the ministry of the church. That's not going to be difficult to see in this chapter. Typically, we stand when we read Scripture, but the way we're going to be going through Acts 8 today doesn't really lend itself to that. So I'm going to ask you, to remain seated. Let's look at how this begins. And Saul approved of Stephen's execution. Saul approved of his execution. And then there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him and this was quite a step by these guys there was great danger in what they did taking Stephen's body and burying him but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison This Saul, of course, is the man who will be converted next week in Acts chapter 9, and whom we know as the Apostle Apostle Paul. Well, he won't be converted next week. We're going to read about his conversion 2,000 years ago next week in in Acts chapter 9. Tension had been building in Jerusalem over the preaching of the gospel. And people were upset. 
Um, and, and the apostles, as we say, have been arrested a couple of times, beaten once, warned not to preach in Jesus' name. But on the day that Stephen was stoned to death, a great persecution arose against the church. Paul, or Saul, ravaged the church with almost sadistic cruelty. Beginning on this day, immediately they started rounding up the suspects. I'm sure they'd been taking names. They'd been getting addresses, taking names, and they said, go after them now. And they knew exactly where to go, and they started dragging people out, persecuting them. Saul was the leading instrument of persecution of the church. But Satan was behind this persecution. Satan is always behind this persecution, behind persecution of the church. He is always behind it. It almost always works against him, but he can't help himself. He he has to do it. He hates us with a passion, and so he, he drives people to persecute us. It's interesting, isn't it, when you think about this? How many times have you read Paul's great lament over who he was before he met Jesus? Just think about it. Paul was the instrument. He was the match. Actually, Saul was the torch. And he had already thrown the gasoline. And when the opportunity arose, he put that torch down. And he started this fire that would never stop. Never stop. So when you, when you see him saying, Oh, God was so merciful to me. I was a murderer of those who follow Jesus. You understand his sorrow. Look at, look at what happened, though, in verse 4. Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Again, they were comfortable. The Lord said, time to move. And boy, they moved in a hurry. Except for the apostles. The, this was a strategic decision for the apostles to stay in Jerusalem. It's going to pop up over and over again in the book of Acts. Uh, including just a little bit later in this chapter. It was very important the apostles stay together. I'm sure they went into hiding. And, and found a way to, to, to miss out on the, the persecution. But... God used this group of men, these guys who had spent three and a half years with Jesus and who had been taught at a very high level between Jesus' resurrection and His ascension. As we will see just a little bit later in this chapter when Philip understands Isaiah 53. So these guys were the ones who said, we affirm that this is the work of God. And everybody understanding their specific relationship with God and their role in the church said, okay, then we accept it as well. But it's interesting, isn't it? That once the apostles seemed to be somewhat sidelined, the gospel spread like wildfire. Although clearly laymen of all stripes were used by God to to send this gospel everywhere, it's not surprising that it's a deacon that we read about who preaches to Samaria and then is is selected to go down and talk to the Ethiopian unit. The spiritual qualifications for elder and deacon are identical, except for one thing. 
that, that a deacon has to be able to teach. But oftentimes they are very qualified to teach because of their knowledge of Scripture, their godly lives, being a testimony to the Lord's power in their lives, and their desire to see the gospel go forward. We have, we'll have ample evidence of Philip's knowledge of Scripture later in this chapter. Verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and they saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. So obviously miracles are not confined to being performed by the apostles. Philip performs miracles. Demons shriek as they come out of people. Um, As we've talked about time and again, and boy, this is really going to come into play in just a few moments here in in Acts 8, a a very difficult passage for many of us. What we see in the book of Acts is not always normative. It was a transitional time. And so something that we see here is not necessarily repeated. Have, Have any of you been out performing miracles? I would imagine the answer is no, maybe God has used you in a miracle that happened to people. Have you been sharing the gospel? Absolutely. Have, have people come to Christ because of your witness, because of your life? Absolutely. Don't be quick to, to, to see God working miracles everywhere, but don't be quick to deny that He does as well. He does perform miracles in our day just like he did then. It was especially so as the gospel was being proclaimed to a group of people that had never heard. And that is still true today. It is especially true when people have never heard the gospel because the work of Satan is is very often very prominent just as we are about to see in Samaria. The work of Satan through this guy, Simon, who was performing miracles was prominent. So the Lord displays His power and people understand that this is the power of God. Now, now this, is, this is amazing that Philip preached Jesus to the Samaritans. It's amazing that, that, that Philip had anything to do with the Samaritans. I mean, maybe just go through there on his way to somewhere else. Jews didn't associate with Samaritans. There had been a schism that had lasted for over a thousand years. This is going to be important in just a moment. For over 700 years, many Jews from the, <clears throat> the northern tribes of Israel had intermarried with the Gentiles. So the Jews considered them racially impure. Now they claimed to worship Jehovah, but they did it differently than the Jews did it. First of all, they only accepted the Pentateuch. They only, the, only the five, first five books of the Bible, they said the law is all that we, we hold to. We don't believe the rest of the Old Testament. Probably one of the reasons they didn't believe the rest of the Old Testament is because the prophets preached against them and they said God's blessings are in Jerusalem. They didn't like that, so they said we, we consider that invalid. They got along still somewhat until in the 4th century B.C. they built a temple on Mount Gerizim and set up a, a, a separate place of worship than the temple in Jerusalem. And that was it. 
the schism was complete and they despised each other. It's very interesting. A little bit later, we're going to see Peter and John coming up there to put their approval on what God was doing. If you recall in Luke chapter 9, some Samaritans rejected Jesus and his disciples. They wouldn't let them, you know, have anything to do in their city. They said, we don't want to have anything to do with you Jews and you false Messiah. John said, Lord, shall we call down fire on them like Elijah did? And now he's here just, just a few years later saying, God has brought the gospel to the Samaritans. You are my brothers and sisters. I'm a little bit ahead of myself. But that's, that's, I think that's very important as to why they believed and were baptized, and yet the Holy Spirit came upon them once Peter and John come onto the scene. I'm not going to comment much because of time about the man we're going to read about now, Simon. Except to say that it's highly unlikely that this man was truly saved. He probably thought he was, but his thoughts and his lack of repentance indicated that most likely he was not. Verse 9. There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. In fact, Simon had convinced a lot of people, history tells us, a lot of early church history talks about this guy, and, and, and he had convinced a lot of people, not only in Samaria, but out that he was some sort of a Messiah himself. And now Philip comes along, And his miracles are greater than Simon's miracles. And Simon, rather than getting in a match, you know, waving his wand, let's, you know, the Obi Kenobi stuff. He he just is amazed. He's amazed. And And he steps back and he says, I'd like to have what you've got. I'm interested in that. By the way, I said I wasn't going to say much about it. And here I am yapping away. It's called simony. The idea of, of, of using ministry for profit, is, it's called Simon. It's because of this text. It's because of this, this guy. All right, verse 10. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. The one who had amazed is now amazed himself. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So what is that about? I mean, isn't... Doesn't the Holy Spirit come upon us at the time that we believe? Isn't that the baptism of the Spirit? Well, the short answer to that is yes. Let me say that time is our severe taskmaster this morning. So instead of going into all the the detail about, you know, the different views about this, let me just say what I, I think happened. I've already alluded to this already. That it was very important that the apostles put their stamp of approval 
on, on the gospel move into new groups. The Samaritans believing was sort of like halfway to the Gentiles because they were half Gentile, many of them were. And, and so Jews thinking that the gospel is all about God's covenant people have to really think this through and say, is this truly what the Lord is doing? Well, Philip goes up there and preaches. He doesn't know any better than to go up and preach to these Samaritans. And they get saved. They, they trust Christ. Peter and John, can't you see it? They're sitting at the table. And they say, Philip preached. Samaritans have believed. And they were baptized. They didn't go pack clothes. They just got up and said, we're out. We're out of here. I mean, they hot-footed it up to Samaria to see what was going on. And they understood that, the, that their belief was genuine. And so they laid hands on these people, and the Holy Spirit came upon them. Now, it doesn't say that they spoke with tongues, but clearly there was evidence. As we've talked about, tongues was evidence. Every time in the book of Acts that the gospel is coming to a new group of people. I'm not saying that tongues are not used in another way, but in the book of Acts, that's the way tongues are used. It's evidence that God came to the Jews, to the Gentiles, and then even to the disciples of John in Acts 19. We'll get to that disciples of, of John the Baptist, to show that Jesus is the only way. So I imagine there was some sign the Holy Spirit had come upon these people. And many people say, okay, see there, you get saved and then you get the Holy Spirit later. No, this is the only instance we see this in, in all of Scripture. And there seems to be good reason, not only because it needed the authentic, authentication of the apostles. The apostles said, we believe it. They lay hands on them, the Spirit comes upon them, and everybody believes. They say clearly God has accepted Samaritans into His family. But here's another reason. What if, this is another possibility, what if they, they say, they get saved, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. Look at the history here. For a thousand years, Jerusalem and Samaria have been divided. What do you think happens if Peter and John are not a part of this, this event? Very likely, they go right back to the ways that they'd always known. They go back to their old ways. We got our church. You got your church. Well, hey, that's kind of like it is America, isn't it? Uh, in fact, all over the world. But, but it could have been that a rival church was set up. And that prevented it. All the wisdom and the grace of God. Well, there's so much that I want to say about the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch, but there is um, relatively little time. i just say a little bit up front, and then we're just going to let the Scripture wash over us as we read this awesome story of the Old Testament clearly showing that Jesus was the Messiah. Rabbis had somehow understood Isaiah 53 to be about the Messiah until Jesus came. They didn't know how it worked, but when Jesus came... And, and they looked at it, and they looked at what happened to Jesus. They said, oh, it's not what it means at all. They, they, they had a reinterpretation of Isaiah 53. Certainly, the Jews had no sense of, of a suffering Messiah before Jesus. But clearly, after Jesus' resurrection, this was part of his teaching to the apostles who passed it on to the Deacons and everybody else in the church that the Old Testament had been pointing to Jesus all along. And it's especially seen as saying, you think crucifixion is a horrible thing. It is. But God prophesied it in this portion of Isaiah. Uh, 
And so it's no coincidence that here is this important official from Ethiopia who was who, who was 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 a servant to the queen in the Candace, I think that's how you say it, dynasty in Ethiopia. A very important person had somehow obtained a role, a scroll of Isaiah while he was in Jerusalem. He was going back home from Jerusalem. And, and possibly he loved the book of Isaiah. As I said earlier, he's most likely a Gentile who's converted to, to, um, to, to Judaism. But he probably loved Isaiah because in Isaiah 56, verses 3 and 4, the restriction against eunuchs being a part of God's covenant people or enjoying in all the blessings of the covenant people in the temple had been lifted. And he loves this. But he's reading Isaiah 53 and the Spirit has, has prepared his heart. He's reading out loud because that's the way everybody did. And Philip comes up alongside the chariot, and he's, he's hearing this eunuch read Isaiah 53. This official read Isaiah 53, and he says, Do you understand what you're, you're reading? And he says, and by the way, it's pretty amazing. I don't know, Philip probably didn't look too good at this point. I mean, I doubt he was dressed in royal robes. And here's this official who could have said, Guards, get this man away from me. I'm trying to concentrate. But very humbly, he says, no, I don't get it. And I want to understand it. But how can I unless somebody explains it to me? You ever had a situation like that? I mean, I've had on a couple of occasions people say, I have a question for you. What does it mean to trust Jesus as your Savior? You know, and it's like, oh, this is just too good to be true. You know, and then you get to share what it means. Don't you know Philip has that, that, that experience where he has just been studying about this. He's thinking about it himself. And it's Isaiah 53, for goodness sakes. It, it's, it's incredible that the crucifixion of Jesus was prophesied in the Old Testament. And salvation opens up from this passage. And so Philip climbs in and shares Jesus. With this man who then believes. Just believes. You know, I'm going to guess that some of you took a while before you finally just said, Okay, I'm just going to believe it. You heard about it. It made sense. You were being drawn. Something was tugging at your heart. But you just, it just wouldn't take that step. The Ethiopian eunuch just believed. And he said, can I get baptized? And Philip said, sure thing. T-H-A-N-G, sure thing. I, I'm sure that's what it is in the Greek. Let's do it. And they went down and were baptized. And can you imagine how the gospel spread in Africa because of that? called away from this great revival in Samaria that not only a great revival, but John and Peter had put their stamp of approval on it, and Philip was the man, if you think in those kind of terms. But he didn't think in those terms. Spirit said, I need you down in Gaza, dusty desert, middle of nowhere. Didn't know why, just said, okay. And he was there on his way. And then look at what the Lord did. 
So, let's um, look at this scripture. And just let it sink into your hearts as we read, beginning in verse 18. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given, through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Simony. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you, have, you thought you could obtain the gift of money, of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, I will do that right now. I repent of my... It's not what he did, is it? Simon said, you pray for me. Please don't let that happen to me. Don't let this judgment come upon me. When the Spirit of God doesn't work in your heart, you repent of your sin. It's not a matter of, oh, I don't want to be punished. It's a matter of, I have offended God. I am so sorry. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem Preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. I mean, not a year or two earlier, John said, bring down fire on these people. And now he's preaching to them. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he arose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. That was a pretty important job. Not banks like we have today. He was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him. And heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you were reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth. And beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water. And the eunuch, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way. Rejoicing the briefest of encounters and yet life-changing 
eternity changing at the highest level. God does that. And it doesn't always result in somebody trusting Jesus right on the spot. Sometimes it's years before that changes. And you never see it, but, but, but I can assure you, if you're walking with the Lord, you're walking according to His Word and being led by the Spirit of God, these kinds of things are happening whether you see them or not. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. These were just gospel preaching machines. All of these guys were. All of them were. So with whom did you share the gospel this past week? I'm sitting with you. been very busy this week with all kinds of things going on. With whom are we sharing? Would, would people look at us and say, gospel sharing, gospel preaching machines? Stephen's going off to the military. We, we need to pray that he will be a gospel preaching machine. No different for him than for us, though. We all have opportunities. Let's follow the example that God has recorded for us as the Spirit takes His Word and burns it into our hearts.